This is the Education Gadfly Show. Not a little black markety in a way, but anyhow, <laughs> I got in. I pulled some strings. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. You go to the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Chris Brewster. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Chris is the president of the Oklahoma Public Charter Schools Association and the superintendent of Santa Fe South Charter Schools in Oklahoma City. Those of you that have been following the news in charter world know why we're talking to Chris. Big news on the funding front there, which we'll get to in a moment. First, let me introduce my co-host as always, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Great to be here. Great to have you here. Well, Chris, we really appreciate your time. I know things have been crazy for you, both with the lawsuit, with the state board action, now with some uh, catching flack from opponents of charter schools. But I want to have you on the show because forever, those of us in charter world have been trying to figure out how to get past the political barriers that in so many states that result in charter schools being so woefully underfunded, especially Mm -hmm. urban charter schools. I know in Ohio, where we do a lot of work, you know, it's still something like 72 cents on the dollar, you know, and these are, these are mostly poor kids, kids of color that are not getting the resources they need. And and in other aspects in public education, when that happens, there are equity lawsuits and people say that's not right. Uh, But we have not been able to, to use that same mechanism in, in charters for a variety of reasons. In Oklahoma, though, uh, your association filed a lawsuit against the state, is my understanding. The state board a few weeks ago voted to settle the lawsuit. That led to a huge controversy. But anyways, I may be getting this wrong. So let's let you describe it. So Chris, (laughs) what's happening out there? Tell us about your strategy to to try to move the ball on charter funding. You're exactly right on that, Mike. A number of years ago, I think it was 2017, we actually filed suit. We thought it was going to be a friendly filing, honestly, to help the state board be able to propagate rules that would allow us to treat our charter kids more equitably. There was sort of some political intrigue at that point. And in the 11th hour, both Tulsa and Oklahoma City Public Schools, the largest charter authorizing sort of traditional districts in the state, entered as uh, interested parties in a lawsuit. And of course, that put the air brakes on the thing. And it has been just kind of clawing its way through the system, uh, of course, interrupted by COVID and, and everything else for a great deal of time since then. Recently, a new appointment on the state board by our governor, Trent Smith, and he is a, a strong pro-choice or pro-student advocate. He's also a businessman. And, and once he got on the board, he began to evaluate from the business perspective that they had a liability hanging over their board. And he also didn't think it was a an unreasonable ask that was being made on behalf of the public charter school kids. And so uh, he pulled the pin on this thing about three weeks ago. And as you as you alluded to, it created quite a dust up in our state as folks began to really show true colors and become polarized around whether or not we should fund public charter school kids the way we fund public school kids in general. Yeah. So tell us just a little bit, Chris, and we're not afraid to get into the wonky weeds here on, on the Education Gadfly Show. So what would this new policy do? What does it do around funding equity for charters? Well, primarily it was designed to take the locally generated ad valorem funds and a portion of the four mil county tax that are already gathered locally for the use of public school students, primarily for the acquisition and upkeep of facilities and capital improvements and make sure that charter school kids who came from these communities receive that portion. But you would have thought we were actually asking for folks' firstborn child. 
And it was completely out of people's comprehension, understanding, or appreciation that we would want our kids, primarily those in bricks and mortar. I think there was some validity about maybe those funds flowing to virtual communities, but that was actually being addressed in some some rule propagation. But it was just unheard of for the local districts to to release these funds that should go to the charter school kids that are not being served by those. Yeah, well, and as we know, it, it is still the case. And there's very few places in the country where those local funds do flow to charter schools. It happens in a few. I think Florida made some changes recently to allow that. You know, there's some places where there's some incentives in place, even in Ohio and Cleveland, for example, there's an incentive for the, the district to share resources with high performing charter schools. But you know, this is still, and it's crazy. This is why we have this huge discrepancy in most places is that uh, there's no way for the charter schools to tap into those mm-hmm. local tax dollars. David, correct me if I'm saying anything wrong, because you've studied this uh, nationally as much as anybody. But Chris, just to understand, how is it that the state board had jurisdiction here? I'm like, wow, we should try this in more places where we've got a friendly state board. Why didn't we think of this before? Well, that's a great question. Actually, the pushback has been on two fronts. One, that detractors would say the state board doesn't have standing. And number two, that it would go against the Oklahoma Constitution. I think both of those would probably be, you'd have to specifically address those in a given state's constitution. Now, we obviously believe that's not to be the case. However, I I guess the most useful part of this has been it literally has brought it to the forefront, to a head for resolution, either in the courts or the legislature. And it looks like we're making quite a bit of headway because our state board was bold enough to say, we got to deal with this and we're going to give it our best shot. If there's somebody who actually thinks they have more or better authority to do so, step up. If not, we're going to make the decision. Now, of course, our state superintendent, her legal counsel were against that. And a couple of folks on the board were reticent to agree to it. So it wasn't a clear-cut decision, a 4-3 decision, in fact. So it wasn't quite that clean, even in a state that has some, some supporters in school choice at the state board level. Yeah. But again, as a forcing mechanism, which is often the case with lawsuits, right, is that when you've got something that is just stuck politically, sometimes lawsuits can help get them unstuck. David, get in here. What what do you think? Yeah, I was going to ask a question just about the sort of broader politics, because, you know, even when you're talking about a Supreme Court or a State Board of Education, obviously, politics sometimes do influence the way people think about things. So I guess I'm just curious, are the broader politics stuck? Was it simply a question of not being able to, to sort of find the right lever to pull? I mean, what does the average person in Oklahoma think about this? What does sort of the leadership in Oklahoma think about this? You promised oh, one question. Up, uphill or downhill? Right. <laughs> well, I, th- I think it's all kind of a, to a broader question of how do you generate broad enough support in a state to pull this off? And uh, we're a red, red, red state, as you guys are aware. But that doesn't mean we're practically red, red, red when it comes to charter schools. Our rural Republicans are much more aligned with what you would assume to be a democratic approach to school choice. Obviously, they're preserving what they believe to be important local schools and not desiring the type of competition that charters bring. You have strong teacher union presence. Uh, You have school associations like the Oklahoma State School Boards Association and COSA, the Organization of Administrators, who pull a lot of weight. So those types of issues have always created enough pushback that significant reform has still been a struggle. And so we've been clawing our way through this for 20 years now. Uh, This certainly wasn't an overnight issue. But again, I think the pressure eventually built so that the, the, and the powder keg was there that when Trent Smith lit the fuse, it created the opportunity for us to move forward into some real, some really beneficial, hopefully long-term solutions that we see on the horizon. 
That's great. I imagine that the very recent news uh, around the oil prices going up, up, up maybe is helpful in Oklahoma as well. Yes. Usually these solutions, they, they have to do with more money for everybody, right? That's right. Short term, <laughs> uh, that makes the medicine go down. Well, speaking of medicine, despite my sort of personal belief, we are now a medicinal marijuana state, probably headed toward recreational marijuana. And uh, nobody had really laid claim for those funds. Everybody wanted this new revenue stream. And it looks like we, again, with good timing, are going to be able to claim this sort of what I would call a sin tax. You know, we want to claim <laughs> funds from lotteries and from booze and from pot to educate kids, which I think has another whole set of issues attached to it. But uh, there's a significant portion of state funding now available that is going to be new funds into the districts, or into education, even though traditional districts won't be able to get as much of it. We are crafting, hopefully, a response that helps other districts that are like charters, who are very ad valorem poor and are still in WPA facilities and don't have the tax base to generate enough money to build an outhouse. We really think those Oklahoma kids deserve the opportunity to have quality facilities as well. So our solution moving forward is one that's not just tailored at charter school kids, but it is at all of the schools that are below the, the mean of uh, local tax dollar support for facilities. Well, that's great. Well, we will leave it there. Chris Brewster, president of the Oklahoma Public Charter School Association. Really appreciate your time today. Again, good luck as you bring this issue to a resolution out there. And I hope that other states will follow suit uh, shortly thereafter. Mike, David, Tran, thank you very much. I appreciate the time and paying attention to little old Oklahoma out here. We appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Chris. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. So, Amber, how's it going on the vaccination front there in Richmond, Virginia? Got my first one a few days ago. Finally, I had to work the system a little bit. I was kind of waiting on a waiting list for a while, but then I realized a friend of a friend had a connection. Yeah. It felt a little black markety in a way, but <laughs> anyhow, <laughs> I got in. I pulled some strings. It's so crazy how hard this is to, yeah. I, I like they're saying, of course, it's terrible for equity stuff, but man, I mean, they're saying we want people vaccinated. We don't want these appointments to go unfilled and then they make it harder than it should be. But that's great. Congratulations. Moderna, Pfizer, what'd you get? I got Moderna, sore arm for two days, but that's it. So I got, I, I got a little, uh, little fever myself from Moderna, but yeah, mm. just lasted a day. David, are you vaccinated yet? My friend? I am scheduled to be vaccinated tomorrow, Mike. Knock okay. on wood here. I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, it yeah. has a sort of air of unreality, right? That we've been yep. talking about it for I don't know how many months and I finally get to do it. No, it's really exciting. It is crazy that the degree that, that, you know, social networks are important. I mean, my wife through her book club, there was all this excitement. Somebody in the book club said, oh, if you call this number, don't go to the website. Cause if you go to the website, they won't have any appointments, but if you call this 800 number, they will pick right. up and you will get an appointment right away for the mass vaccination site at the, the football stadium in Baltimore. And that's what happened. And <laughs> You know, they wanted to sign up as many people and they ran it. It was great. There were National Guard folks there. They got people in and out. It, it's impressive. I, I'd have to say it, it makes you feel patriotic when I see uh, uh, the country coming together. To do it doesn't right. take much, does it, Mike? I, I well, guess, I, I'm, I'm patriotic by nature. That's all right. I don't know. Although the, the J&J one would have me a little bit uh, a uh, little concerned right now. I know. So. I know. Uh, but just a little bit. Come on. You talk all the time. What? <laughs> six and six million. Come on. What is that? 
<laughs> I know, I know. As long as I'm not one of the, you know, infinitesimal number that get the crazy clot. So yes. anyhow. All right. What you got for us this week? We have a new international study in the Economics of Education Review that examines how gender gaps in numeracy and literacy evolve between childhood and young adulthood. So I was kind of interested in this one because we all know that boys tend to outperform girls in numeracy and girls tend to outperform boys in literacy. But we know very little about how these gaps evolve as children grow up. And we know even fewer things about how they look when they're young adults. So in the absence of cross-country comparable longitudinal data, analysts do this really cool thing. They combine information from existing cross-sectional large-scale assessments, basically around the world, that contain representative samples of the same birth cohort at different points in time and up to 11 countries. Sounds pretty straightforward. They're able to track the evolution of gender gaps for a single cohort of students that participated in different waves of different surveys from ages 10 to 27. Oh, man. When when did this start? They focus on kids born in 1984-85. So they were 10 years old when they took the TIMS, which tests numeracy. Is that you, David? That was a good year, Mike. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) You're in the survey, buddy. It's the year of the rat. And they use pearls to test literacy. Then when they're 15 years old, they took the PISA, which tests both literacy and numeracy. And when they were 27 years old, they took the PIAC, which covers both of them again. So schools are sampled first, then students in schools for Tim's, Pearls, and PISA. PIAC is a household survey with a target population of 16 through 65 living in a country. Households are sampled first, and then individuals sampled in households. In all four of the surveys, proficiency is estimated using item response theory or IRT models. Basically, analysts standardize all scores by subtracting from individual scores, the overall mean score, and dividing by the overall standard deviation. They estimate both a pooled regression that includes country fixed effects and separate regressions for each country. They decide not to use a bunch of controls because they're primarily interested in whether the performance of boys and girls differ rather than whether it differs conditional on a range of other things. Mm -hmm. Plus their primary interest is is in how these gaps evolve over over time. And there are very few background variables that are measured consistently and comparably across these various surveys that they use. Finding in the large majority of countries, the gender gap in numeracy in favor of boys tends to be linear, growing as students age with the gap particularly pronounced after leaving compulsory schooling and entering the post-secondary education or labor market. By contrast, the gender gap in literacy is highest during the teenage years and lowest among young adults. Specifically, numeracy gender gaps are small at age 9 and 10, with an advantage of boys around 3% of a standard deviation, but they grow large by age 15 and 16. Now we're at 9% of a standard deviation, and they're largest at age 27, where we get a difference of around one-third of a standard deviation. In the case of literacy, girls have a large advantage at around age 9 or 10, about 22% of a standard deviation. It grows larger by age 15, 16 to 28% of a standard deviation, but by age 26, 27, the advantage shrinks to essentially zero, as young men actually have a non-statistically significant advantage of about 13% of a standard deviation by that point. 
I've been saying it. <laughs> <laughs> you have? I don't remember that. No, I don't remember uh, that either. This is really surprising. Surprising for boys. I, surprising. As a robustness boys. check, they're basically trying to guard against their results being interpreted as age effects. They then track three different cohorts using just PISA and PIAC. They find the stability of gender gaps across all three waves with uh, the gender uh, gap in literacy disappearing as early as age 20. They also conduct some other robustness tests to rule out that the results may be due to differences in sampling design and in the particular assessment frameworks of these various tests. Then, which I love, I've been finding actually that more and more uh, empirical studies start trying to dig into potential mechanisms. They used to just say, we don't know in the end. <laughs> but anyway, they try to dig into potential mechanisms. They look at various gender equality measures uh, with the idea that more gender equal countries would see gaps evolve in a way more favorable to women, but they actually don't see that. Uh, and then they say, well, maybe those results aren't any good because we could only examine them in a few countries anyway. And then they hypothesize that the increase in the numeracy gap from age 15 to 27 could be related to choices concerning post-secondary education. So they're able to show that controlling for STEM-related careers, that reduces the size of the gap by about half. As for literacy, reading writing skills do not differ according to whether a student pursues a STEM career or not. And so they posit that literacy skills are more universal. So men are able to develop them on the job and catch up with women. They close asking how we can raise the math competency of girls given that gaps open up during the school years and they're harder to close later in life. That's what I got. Wow. Now, to be clear, Amber, all of these findings were for sort of the world as a whole or the- 11 countries, yes. Is there any way to see a US only finding? Yes, we saw, I, I did take a look at the US only and basically it found that the boys were able to close the gap even more quickly. So I think it was us and maybe England where those gaps started closing before, I think around, remember I said somewhere they closed it around age 20. The boys are able to close the gap even more quickly. But sim similar findings for the girls on yes. the math gap? Yep. Interesting. I, I'm surprised. This is I, I am. I, this is not what I have would have predicted. If if you had done one of those survey things where you survey us at the beginning, I would have gotten this one wrong. I'm flabbergasted. I'm sitting here trying to make sense of it too, Mike. I mean, the takeaway seems to be that math is. I mean, it's it's a traditional takeaway, right? In some senses, that math is mostly an in-school thing and that ELA is also in school, but also about what happens in the home and what you're doing at work. I guess I'm just wondering, I mean, are we ever going to get past this <laughs> is one reaction, right? I mean, it just seems like we've been talking about this forever mm -hmm. uh, when it comes the, the, to the math gap, the math, the math gap. gap. We've been talking about it forever. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but I, I had the impression that that gap I was thinking, and when I would describe, it, I would think, well, that gap has been closing and maybe there's still a gap at the various highest level of achievement where you get, you know, this weird thing where the math prodigies are still way more likely to be male than female. But, you know, overall, the gap's closing. Now, maybe that's still the case. I mean, it, it could be that you, for younger kids, maybe we see a less of a math gap or, you know, as, as we've had initiatives, try to get more more girls and women into STEM fields. That maybe is helping. Maybe. I mean, because now these we're talking about a cohort that is old, David, old. I mean, yeah, no, it's almost true. over the hill. It, it's true. So is the, is the upshot that uh, boys are catching up because they're more likely, or young men are, are catching up because they're simply more likely to be in the workforce? 
Uh, or just what they're they're finally doing more reading by the time they're I mean they're I want to say they're finally growing up but that you know <laughs> I, I mean but that I mean I, I'm joking but that is kind of I mean I don't think I'm breaking new ground by saying that men of a certain age right are challenging and we've struggled for a long time I think to reach high schoolers right well, and, and yes and we've known that teenage girls are much more likely to choose to read for fun, you know, I mean, right. voluntarily, right, for leisure than, than teenage boys are. I don't know. Amber, you used to teach English in high school. I mean, how do you make sense of, you, of, of that uh, gender gap? Yeah, no, no, I think that's exactly right, that girls are just, you know, more likely to want to read. Um, but I will say, I don't know, that's a little bit stereotypical, too, because when you found a subject that a boy or a girl was interested in, they would read it baseball is your thing, whatever. Mike, you've got boys. I mean, you know, if you find a, a book or a series that really captures their attention, they're, they're going to read it. Yep. That's true. Although now those books and magazine articles have to compete with podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. And what about on the, the math gap? I mean, is, are you surprised, Amber, that it's still so big at that age for that girls are still behind? Not really. I mean, I, I don't know what we do to get that fear away. I mean, I really, I feel like there's been so many initiatives taken uh, in districts and, and schools and including by having female STEM. And we used to host back in the day, we'd have female STEM people come on career day, you know, to talk to the girls and and I've, I've covered other stories on here that basically show that, that girls have more, when you survey them, they definitely have more anxiety about taking math than boys do. I, I don't know how we, how we continue to chip away at sort of the, the sociocultural factors uh, that are inhibiting, uh, you know, that are increasing these gaps. I have a final question, which is, was there a deterioration in sort of the early 20s? I mean, are people's math skills, their, their reading skills, are they atrophying? How much of this is actually sticking? I did not see that. I mean, we only had, we had 27 was the last, you went from 15 to 16 to 27. Because there are actually two ways that you can open or close a gap, right? <laughs> one way is to learn a lot of math. The other way is to forget a lot of math after you leave high school or college, right? And I know which one I've done. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, interesting. Well, hey, somebody should send this study to Larry Summers. I understand that he, uh, Remember uh, him getting kicked out of Harvard for trying to comment. I wasn't going to go there, Mike, but of course. I know, I but I, I feel for the guy. I feel yeah, for the guy. Yeah, yeah. Hey, great study, Amber. Thanks for bringing yeah. it to us. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, another sign that descriptive studies can uh, be really important and insightful. Yeah. And, and covered in the Economics of Education Review, which is a high quality peer reviewed journal. So. Yeah. That is, that's great. All right. Well, that is all the time that we've got for the show. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.